This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Radiotherapists, it's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I am Dr. Doolittle, and we have a lot to discuss this morning. Joining me in the 3RRR operating theatre this morning are three of my favourites. Trainer Wheels is here, the smartest medical student in town, fresh from the lecture halls of Melbourne University, where she sits there diligently, pen in hand, paper in front of her, who am I kidding, phone in hand, tappable keyboard in front of her, just taking notes, soaking it all in. Trainer Wheels is going to tell us a little bit about infectious diseases, fatalities in Australia. Mm, sounds quite scary. Next to Trainer Wheels is the panel beater, the James Bond of radiotherapy. He can do everything. He can do everything, I swear. He can solve all of our problems. But like James Bond, it remains a mystery just how he got to where he is today. Who is this man of mystery? I, for one, do not want to pull back the curtains. I'm just happy to sit here and listen. Today, the panel beater is unravelling the Harger, the Harger, the Harvard Trigger Warning Study. That's a mouthful. Which had some surprising results about the effects of trigger warnings and telling people about things like safe places. And next to me is Cyber Sue, our nurse with a passion for the more IT savvy slash digital side of the healthcare world. Anything that's in your computer is in her head. <laughs> Cyber Sue has been scouring the news for the latest stories and has some information about the flu season this year. So let's get the show on the road, starting with the news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. Hey. We're here. It's Triple R, Sunday morning, 10.05 and 25 seconds, 102.7, given all the all the stuff straight up front. What else should, should I go up front, team? I suppose I should say g'day first. Why don't we start with you, Panel Beater? How are you, man? I'm doing really well. It's so good to have you back. Oh. It seems like 
forever. It's I know, almost look, like I don't know you. I know. I I'm feel, meeting um, you for the first time again. I feel like an imposter myself. It's like I've been, for those of you out there who don't know... Haven't been keeping track. Haven't been keeping track of my life in great detail, <laughs> which I dare say is a couple of you. A couple of people mustn't know. Sure. I've been on holidays for six months. Hey, let's say g'days because I, actually I might talk about the benefits of taking six months off from your job every once in a while. But let's say finish our g'days. Um, how are, are you over there, Trainer Wheels? I'm very well, thank you. You um, had, took some time off recently for other reasons. I did, yeah. You're back, at, you're back in the mix? I, I am, yeah. I'm did back. you have trouble settling in? Um, oh, I'm very tired. That's probably been the major challenge. But it, no, it's been mostly it's been good to be back, actually, enjoying it. Yeah, it is interesting going back. What about you, Cyber Sue? How are you? I am excellent. Yeah? Yep. No have you cold, ever... no flu, no virus. Or no nothing? Top, top box of birds. Have you ever taken a gap from work? Because you work in a hospital like me. I'm tempted to, actually. You've never yeah. done it? No, but I do know that I've got long service leave, Ooh. and I think that that's very good for mental health. Oh, yeah. look, it's not just... I mean, everyone talks about... You know, so th- just to put, you, put it in context, so I've been working in the public system 35-odd years, and so I've always had, you know, all that, you know, those various leaves, things like sabbatical, conference leave, long service leave, you know, accruing. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm the world expert on taking holidays and taking advantage of your leave. We have heard that yes. rumour do little. So this is the second time I've taken six months off and I've taken three months off about five times over that period. Plus, I always take my maximum leave each year. Plus, whenever they let me, I... Um, I buy, do purchase leave. I try and buy an extra month a year. And the other trick I always do is long service leave. Legally, you can take it half pay. Yes. So effectively, oh. if you've got, you know, five weeks long service leave, you can turn it into 10 weeks mm. and get half pay. Mm. Obviously, you need to be able to survive on half pay. But if you could see how thin I am, you'd know. <laughs> you know this is, You're truly you've been emaciated. Fine. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes I don't even smoke. That saves <laughs> a lot of money. <laughs> lot of money. This yeah. is a health show. But, you know, it's interesting. You know, people go on and on about the mental health, but it's more than that. You know, mm. you get, I don't know, I, I just, I know it's hard to organise, but the, com- the mm. most frequent comment I get when people say, how did you get six months off? They say, I would, I'd kill for that. And always, mostly, you know, if you've got it, if you plan ahead, and I always plan them about a year out because, you know, you have to plan cover and you have to let the hospital know and or your workplace and you have to do all this sort of, all this bullshit that goes along with it. But, um Gee, it's worth it. Totally worth it. The, the one, like, I reckon you've managed it really by the sounds of it, you know, the way that you've paced those, that leave. He's and got someone managed. writing a PhD about him, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah the benefits of long... Uh, yeah. But you did, you did mention it's in the public sector and that's a sector mm. I'm familiar with too and yep. it, it is a little more malleable to that. I think in the private sector, if you were to take that kind of sequence of breaks you'd start to give your employer the impression that they don't need you That's right. <laughs> if you're away that long. Mm. And I think if you talk to a lot of people about why they don't do that, if they're in the private sector, they're actually saying, look, it's, it's, I want to, I know it's good for me, but career-wise it would kill me. Yeah, and I didn't start doing it probably till I was 40. Hmm. So, I've, you know, so that's when I really, st- you know, you couldn't early on. And realistically, that is the commonest thing, I think. I wouldn't be at all surprised. I won't tell it. No one knows where I work. Even the people where I work at Peter Mac don't know I work there. So, um, but, you know, if they get wind, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's going through their heads, why, why do we employ this dickhead? You know, really, he can go away for six months. The place goes just as smoothly. It's a community Smooth? service. Yeah, keep you off the street. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Help him put on some weight that he's lost. <laughs> but you know what? You know the other thing. Um, just touching on your point, um, trainer wheels. When you, you know, when you go back, you know, I've I've found this before too. When you go back after a break, 
you, you sort of like your head's not in the game for the first few mm. weeks oh, yeah, for sure. and you have to concentrate twice as hard. Did you find oh, that? Oh, yeah, I have to write everything down. Yeah. My brain is like a sieve. Yeah. Yeah, like like basic things like, you know, send this email. I've got to yep. make sure it's all written I'm, down. I'm otherwise exactly it doesn't get the same. Done. And I find with patients too, this is, if anyone's seen me in the last couple of weeks, <laughs> don't panic. Um, but I find this with patients that I sort of, you know, the stuff that's just so routine to me, I sort of forget a little bit. So I'll finish a consultation. I'll pop out to my computer to start writing my notes and I'll go, oh, shit, I forgot to ask him about such and such. Hey, come back a sec. Hey, I just forgot to ask you. Tell me about your family again. It's like your brain's not turned on. If, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah no, wonder, no wonder they suggest you take long service. Yeah, that's right. They just want, that's why they agree to it. They just want to be out of the place. Oh, my God. No one knows this, but I'm just going to tell you something. Trainer Wheels just coughed into her elbow. What a perfect segue to the flu season. Absolutely. Top marks, trainer wheels. Thank you so much. I am a diligent medical student, as you said. Yes. Cyber Sue, take us away, because you want to talk about the flu season, don't you? Well, I do, because I just had it shown to me that anyone who's got the Sunday age in front of them, they'll see shock rise in babies hit by flu. Yep. Now, I haven't read that article, and I don't need to, because everyone's already reading it at home. No, I'm like, you. I only yeah. read headlines. That's enough. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's enough. Yeah, that's why I voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> although, as it, although, as it turns out, my vote in Australia didn't count. <laughs> Anyway, back to you, Yeah, but, but I was down in Warrnambool earlier on this week because, you know, time off work, as we're talking about. And, um, yeah, sure enough, front page of the um, local rag, a 37-year-old lady had just come from home from ICU. She'd been in ICU with um, influenza. And I thought, wow, you, you, people are getting admitted still to intensive care um, with the flu. And um, they said that with more than a month of winter to go, Warrnambool had um, 10 times the amount of flu this year in, than last year. And they had 250, they said, the, the article said 251 people had been hit by flu. So then I thought, what, 251 in Warrnambool or in Victoria? I looked it up and guess how many people in Vic have had flu this year? I mean, thousands. I don't how know many? the number. 30, 33,000 yep. people what? have had influenza in Victoria this year. We're in the midst of a shocker season, aren't we? It's unbelievable, yep. and it's much worse than last year. It's almost as bad as the year before. Not quite there yet. but And the year like, before was like the worst in 10 years. Yeah. So, you know, Way, if you look at all the... I've yeah. seen these charts. If you look at the charts, 2017 was like a shocker. It mm. was like five times worse than the average season, mm. and we're virtually at it already, and it's still relatively early. Exactly right. We've still got lots of winter to go. And so when you look at it, um, I looked at the data, and if you know 100 people, chances are five of those people will have had influenza already this year. Goodness me. Yeah, which is quite something. So, yeah, and 37 people dead already. That's just Victoria. Just Victoria. I think Victoria. Australia were up to 220. Yep. Yep. Could well be, but we care about Victoria, right? Hey, do you guys know any of the five <laughs> people each? I don't know anyone who's had it. I'm actually wondering if my daughter might have it. Right. <clears throat> yeah, she's pretty crook. Have you whizzed her along for a test? No, I haven't yet. I probably should get her. There is just a, they just do like a little swab and they tell mm. you. Because the problem is a lot of people call like the, a bad case of the common cold the flu, mm. don't they? Exactly. Yeah, which is a bit exactly. different. Whereas the flu yeah. is like full on, you know, headache, muscle aches and pains. You know, people High say fevers. when you've got the full on flu, you just sweats. don't get out of bed. You feel like you're dying. It's that sort of bad. Oh, I've never had it. Anyone here had it? The flu. I think I might I have had it as a teenager. I might yeah, have it's had pretty it back bad. Then, but I've, mind you, I get well, you know I get the flu shot every year. Well, so. there can be people that don't have the symptoms, and I guess oh, that's really? the other thing as well. So people can carry it without realizing. So then it makes you wonder: Well, how do we how do we prevent the spread of the flu, and how do we keep ourselves safe, and do we stop this widespread population deep throating that's spreading the flu? <laughs> 
Deep throating. Why do you say? Because it sounds like I'm missing out on some important social uh, activity. I don't get that memo. No, no one deep throats me. The best I ever get is the g'day. Uh, how are you, Steve? No, uh, Dr. Doolittle, nice to have you back well, in town. And others we... are deep throating. Dan! Well, Dr. Doolittle, you're safe. We know you don't even like to hug, right? Oh, I'm a no. T- I, I yeah. practice no touch uh, humanity. Oh, well, that's probably why you've never had the flu. That's yeah. right. All this hand. What about the hugging? I mean, for God's sakes, it's just. It, oh, please, anyone, if you know me, don't hug me. It's not that I don't like you. It's not that I don't love you. It's just that I don't like touching no, other humans. That. Yeah, we don't want to get you a cold <laughs> so anyway. What so what should we do to prevent the flu? Well, you know, one might say, do we start wearing masks, you know, all the time to prevent the flu? And um, when you look on um, on the World Health Organization recommendations and things, they say, if you've got an influenza-like syndrome, symptoms, stay away, stay at home. Yeah. Yep. Um, wear a mask if you think that you might be spreading it. If you're going to wear a mask all the time, you'd have to wear it basically 24-7, so there's not much point in that. Sneeze and cough into your elbow of your arm. Like, um, none of you saw it except us, but like um, training. Yeah, there was live radio. That's yeah, right. Medical that's students, right. they're so painful. Not into your hand and then go and touch the rail in the tram. Yeah, or shake my hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently vitamin D, people talk about vitamin D, but studies are fairly variable about the true efficacy of uh, vitamin D, but they do know that um, the flu seems to be more seasonal, um, obviously in the winter, and there's d- debate about whether that's because we're all squashed inside places together. But they say that actually it could be a combination of being in um, more cold and um, uh, drier areas and the type of environment, but they don't really know what's spreading it. But yeah, sneeze into your arm, stay at home, stay away from people, and what else? I believe there's hey, some evidence for zinc oh, supplements. Is there? Mm, yeah, and stop breathing. So. Oh yeah, <laughs> stop breathing because well, breathing I, spreads it. I haven't breathed in years. You haven't breathed good. Yeah. <laughs> hey, <laughs> but just a couple of quickies. I remember reading an article about the face masks somewhere sure. really good recently, and the gist was equivocal, but probably a waste of time mm. um, because even when you wear them, the commercial ones you buy at the chemist and stuff oh, like that, right, they yeah. stop being effective after about a half an hour. They get so moist. And yeah, like the yep. N95 ones yeah. in the yeah. hospital. Yeah, and really, they won't yeah. prevent you getting, but they can prevent a little bit you spreading. Okay. So it's more mm. put it on if you've got it. They're really popular in some cultures like, say, Japan. Yes. You know, you walk down the street to Japan and, um, you know, there's there, you see them all the time. What's the other? Oh, the other thing I was going to say that often surprises people is the majority of the spread is touch. It's not... Mm. Um, so it's mainly touch. And the flu virus can last, I forget what the number is, it's like 48, 72 hours. Mm, uh, you know, I think it's about mode. two days mm. on cold, dry surfaces. Yes. Wow. So it's door handles, mm. stuff like that. So mm. the real, the best thing you can do is, is do what we do in hospitals and we just wash our hands every, mm. you know, every time we every do time, something. Every moment. Every yes. time we touch a patient, every time we touch it, you know, all those sorts of things. Yeah. And if you see someone who's paranoid about germs like me walking through the hospital, it's just my walk through the hospital is basically a trip from one hand sanitizer to the next you know like people who are a bit toey about you know um going to the toilet in public know every public toilet i know every hand sanitizer in every hospital in melbourne and you don't get sick right so there's the case in point exactly. i don't know if it works because so, i'm so neurotic I, so get every, I get every mental illness going part you know i get every psychosomatic problem uh, hand that- washing and don't forget the flu shot is yeah. the active ingredient in the hand sanitizer the same for every hand sanitizer? No. And the the okay. So the follow up question is: Are the viruses or vi- yeah? Is it plural for virus? Viri. Viri. Oh, I have no um, idea. Nah, viruses. Surely. And, <laughs> yeah, I've always said viruses. I hate all this fancy. Is talk. that? 
Viri. We know, we know the the principle behind um, some of the issues with antibiotics at the moment. You know, there's the immunity yeah, um, resistance. Is the same thing happening with sanitizers and the active agents in those? In, for bacteria, yes. I don't, it's inevitable. Uh, yeah, I don't know that it's an issue for viruses as much. But having that, basically, there's no good evidence that you should have antibacterial soap at home or any oh. hand sanitizer type stuff at home. In hospitals, there is lots of evidence that it's helpful. What's the distinction then? I think because at home, you're just not likely to be exposed to really hi- dangerous things like you are the in hospital. resistant stuff. But it's and just, soaps, it's just driving resistance. Exactly. Soap, soap is good enough. Off, just normal hand soap knocks off like 99.9% of stuff. I, I virtually only use soap. I don't yep. really... I mean, I'll use those alcohol ones at work mainly because I like the smell of them and, and it gives me a little bit of a... At your weekly shower. Yeah, it gives me a little bit of a boost <laughs> I walk along and I smell the alcohol smell and I go, mm, reminds me of my youth going. when I smelt glue and textures. Oops. <laughs> Am I getting carried away again? Should I pull back? Have I been on holidays too long? Hey, so. one last question for you, um, CS, so so. Mm. Flu vaccine, is it too late? We're up to no. July. Well, that's a great question, but no, any time. Um, there's even kind of a peak time a little bit closer into the season when they say it's the best time to get the flu shot, but we know it's free for the key vulnerable po- yep. parts of our population, but good for everybody. If it's not for yourself, it's for that herd immunity. And do, do, do little, is it not till September that you can still get the flu shot? Yeah, is you, that can right? get it, yeah you can get it quite late. I don't know what yeah. the, I don't know the answer to that question, but I know having come back from holidays, the first thing I did was pop down to the ID nurses at my hospital, you know, infectious disease nurses, mm. and said, is it too late? And they said, pull up your sleeve. Oh, they and would so, be delighted. Well, yeah, the peak's so, still coming. Yeah, the well, I was actually a bit disappointed because I said, can't I pull down my pants? Why can't I do it in my buttocks? <laughs> and they said, we only want to see your shoulder. I said, but have a look. It's not a bad bot- bottom. Um, but anyway, so I got it in my shoulder. But I had a quick look. It only takes a couple of days to become effective. And given that we mm. haven't hit the peak yet, it's not clearly mm. not too late. Mm. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Listening to 3 R, and the show is called Radiotherapy. I am Dr. Doolittle. The panel beater is here. Cyber Sue is here. Trainer Wheels is here. And if you're listening, you're here too. And I'm in a frivolous mood, so let's do something serious. Over to the panel beater, the James Bond of radiotherapy, to <laughs> tell us about something to do with Harvard University. <laughs> Is that like Harvard University theme music? No, it's James Bond. Oh, of course. You know what it sounded like to me from over here, which is a little bit weird because the panel beater, for those of you who can't see him in the studio, has a beard. It sounded like the theme from Deliverance. I was hearing banjos. I was hearing... And I'm looking across and I've got panel beater with his beard on and I've got a little bit of a shiver up my spine. Oh, spooky. Am I the toothless kid on the brain? In well, Harvey, well, Harvey, <laughs> anyway, Harvard, Harvard University. So, from Deliverance to Harvard University. Well, yeah, yeah. So, this the latest attempt to understand trigger warnings has come out of Harvard. It's something that's been looked at for a little while now. But just um, to set the scene, so trigger warnings. What we're referring to is those warnings that you see um, increasingly on your social media. If there's an image or um, that the algorithm picks up and says, you know do you really want to see this and you have the option of clicking it? Um, there's trigger warnings uh, in front of some TV shows. Sometimes when you go to the cinema, there'll be something um, um, on the screen beforehand alerting you to the fact that there's, um, you know, uh, perhaps um, uh, sexual violence. Um, there might be other kinds of trauma that people may have been exposed to in their lives. And the, the principle is that if you let people know in advance 
that they're going to be exposed to these kinds of images or sounds or scenes, um, that they then have the option to opt out mm -hmm. um, or, um, or just be prepared for it, right? So it's coming from a really good place, right? Um, and uh, there's not too much that's mandated around this and so a lot of the trigger warnings that we experience are, are voluntary you know cinemas or um, social media companies are doing it of their own volition um i know for myself last semester at least twice i um i gave trigger warnings at the front end of uh lectures seminars yep. we were looking at um, um sexual violence and um and i when, didn't have to do it but when did, I did you it. give it sorry to interrupt right right at the front Right at the front. I mean, the, the syllabus at the start of semester had it um, listed that week. That's what we were going to do. Um, but on that week, I mentioned at the front end. Are there any, can I ask you, are there any, does the university have any guidelines or recommendations? Right. So this is where it starts getting contentious. Right. I've just set it up as so it's not mandated. But as soon as you start telling people what they have to do, they start questioning it. And that's perhaps part of the context for the studies that are going on about trigger warnings is to find out if they actually do what the intention is for them to do. Um, Monash became the first university in Australia last year to mandate that um, course syllabus needed to put trigger warnings in. Um, and um, there was an incident up in La Trobe, at La Trobe University um, recently about um, uh, the student union looking at getting some trigger warnings over some uh, literature um, and so on. So it's starting to infiltrate, for want of a better word, maybe that's quite loaded, maybe there's a little bit of prejudice uh, in that language, but it's starting to infiltrate um, the mainstream and become almost normalised that this is going on. So where do you draw the line is one question and does it do any good is... The second question. So these researchers at Harvard, um, they took an interest in this and just recently published um, uh, uh, a second um, piece of research. They did a small um, piece last year, early last year, and then they released um, a paper called Helping or Harming the Effect of Trigger Warnings on Individuals with Trauma Histories. And um, what they did was they... They wanted to know um, whether the claims of the activists seeking for trigger warnings to be mandated had any merit, and they showed that the trigger warnings might do more harm than good. Mm. All right, mm -hmm. we love these studies. Yeah, the studies so, that go against the popular belief are yeah, the most helpful ones of the lot. Yeah, um, so it's it's already started. So this piece of research just got into the media in the last week or so, um, um, and I'm sure we haven't heard the last of it. The the way that they went about it was they um, were following up a, a, a smaller piece of work, but for this trial they got uh, 451. So in social psychology research terms, that's that's quite a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's significant. Um, 451 responses, all of them self-reported trauma survivors. Mm -hmm. Okay, and they were randomly assigned into two groups. Um, they uh, at the start of the study they. Um, reported on their change of anxiety levels after reading passages uh, from uh, various literature um, with varying disturbing content and um, scenes and so on. Um, they had um, neutral content. Um, they had wholly violent, mildly distressing and markedly dist distressing um, pieces of um, material. One group 
were given um, uh, the markedly distressing passages and, and they were given the preface trigger warning. The passage you are about to read contains disturbing content and may trigger an anxiety response, especially in those who have a history of trauma. That was presented to them before reading. Um, and then after each passage, the respondents ranked certain emotions out of 100 and a more complex survey in addition to that. Um, what they found, and this is where it becomes interesting, what they found, they proved more detrimental than beneficial to this cohort of survivors. Um, the side of the warning before the passage primed the respondents, so they were ready for it, clearly, so it was meeting that objective. Um, everybody said, yep, I feel pre-warned and I, I know what I'm getting into. And obviously, to get through an ethics council to do the research, mm. that would have had to have been covered off on in the first place. Um, uh but the but the anticipation heightened the effect mm. of what they had. So, in other words, unless the trigger warning is so that people do opt out mm. of what they're about to experience, the actual anticipation mm. of it becomes an issue to manage. And it's interesting. It kind of seems to me like that's what it, it's kind of telling you. This is what you can expect to feel, and so it's almost preempting it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll just. I can think of a couple of daily examples, um, like the dentist. Do you guys, mm. when the dentist says, I'm just about to do X. Something that really hurts. Yeah. <laughs> and I told my dentist, don't do it. No, really? Yeah. I'd rather know. Yeah? Yeah, I'd rather know in advance so I can sort of, you know, mentally prepare myself, take deep breaths and stuff. Yeah, but you'd rather the, in, the pain came as a surprise. <laughs> well, because... But, but because yep. The pain that I get after the dentist has told me I'm about to get it is never as bad as what they say it's going to be. Right. And so I figure if they go, oh, hey, this, this is going to um, hurt very briefly um, in just a second, um, my anxiety, and I, I, I accept that this is a personal response, not everybody would experience it the same way, that actually makes me anxious. Right. Um, and after, while it's done, it ends up not being as bad. Mm. Um, it's an, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when anyone who works in paediatrics, you always talk about preparing the child in advance, don't you, and telling them it's just going to hurt a bit or not being a surprise to them. But yeah. I think that's a little bit different, though, because yeah. they've got to be able to... My attitude to that is they've got to be able to trust you. Yes. And if you hurt them mm. without them knowing, them then they're going to be anxious for the rest of the consultation, Absolutely. wondering if pain's coming yeah, in. And it, so I yeah. don't know that that's a, 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 quite an equivalent... Example. Yeah, it may not be. Um, it was the cl one of the closest things I could, I could think of. You know, because I haven't, you know, I'm, when I read about what's happening in the university, I work in a university, but I don't go there much because I'm based in a hospital. So I'm uh, out of the culture. And I've read a lot about all, especially in the US, mm. you know, this is really taken it's over. Ramping up big All time. sorts of, you know, rules about what you can Safe and can't spaces. do and say. And, you know, so, and, and of course, it's, which is then triggering, <laughs> pardon the pun, triggering the whole debate, you know, about freedom of speech and all, all the rest of it and um and uh so you know it's incredibly fascinating but i haven't hardly seen it in my real life i hear it occasionally you know i see it when the occasionally you hear it on the radio on facebook occasionally mm. now the image is blurred and it mm. says only press this button if you you know if you it's it's coming sorry uh train that's wheels. all right you go you go um it's it's really stunning but so i reckon i gave my first trigger warning um I just did air quotes for the list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I reckon I gave my first trigger warning about three years ago. Right. Um, and, I, and if I remember that as the, the one that I've got in mind, um, it was fairly flippant. I just said, hey, guys, you know, I'm going to show you this uh, video. It's going to be a bit of blood and gore and da-da-da-da. Um, whereas the one I gave 
this semester, you know, I was really deliberate about. Yep. You know, I created mm-hmm. a quarantine moment in time, mm-hmm. and and. This and I didn't have to do it. So what I think is important here is that obviously there's a culture emerging where we, there's a, something in the air, so to speak, mm. that we know that we should do it and we've got to maybe check in on our motivations. Is it to avoid yeah. something other than actually trying to support people? Well, I want to throw in an opposite idea in there is maybe not in the university setting but online is that is it a form of kind of promotion or almost like an advertising thing that you're about to see something that's really mm. bad and yucky? So I, I, the I clickbait think, sort of element. I, th- yeah. I think there's a bit of that. I think a bit of it is also virtue signalling. It's an opportunity yeah. for the person who's making the post to say, look how considerate I am. Mm. I'm considering that this might affect people in ways that I can't foresee but I'm flagging that. And that's not, that, you know, that's not necessarily necessarily a bad thing it but i think that's virtuous. part of it, it exactly but it what does the study is. show do we have you hit the re- i have a few questions about the study actually go on the text that they used as the trigger warning yep. that you read out before is quite different from the trigger warnings i've come across on social media before the ones that i've come across are quite specific they usually say you know trigger warning or content warning this has depictions of sexual violence or you know child abuse or whatever like it yep. specifies what the potentially triggering content is whereas that was very vague and it i also think it was kind of a little bit loaded the way it was worded because it said especially if you have a history of trauma this might Mm. you know and you might experience a panic and anxiety yeah which i feel like that's priming somebody to be anxious and i also my other question is you said that the participants in the study were self-reported survivors of trauma did they actually? It sounds like they didn't have a diagnosis of PTSD, which I feel like this is where a lot of this stuff is coming from, right? When people have triggers for their post-traumatic yeah. stress. The disorder. the first study, the smallest study, it was specifically PS, uh, PSTD. Okay. Um, and um, I wish I had the actual article. It, it was published in um, a very prestigious journal. It was published in um, where was it? Somewhere, Journal of Behaviour Therapy and Experimental Psychiatry. Um, and um, I think I recall reading that uh, it, they did have a, um, a set of psychiatrists uh, and psychologists, um, as well as the research, researchers themselves, assess mm. um, the uh, participants. It's not to say that in the absence of a diagnosis of PTSD, you can't be triggered by a, you know potentially, you know, graphic content or whatever, but I feel like that's an important distinction probably course, to include. You know, as a shrink, mm. which is what I am, um, and I worked in PTSD for years. That's mm. what I did my doctorate in. Mm. Um, and I worked with veterans for years. Of course, we, you know, a key part of PTSD, PTSD has essentially got, you know, four groups of symptoms, the reliving the experience, avoidance and hyperarousal and, of course, the trauma. And uh, you're trying to train people to... to not have so much avoidance. And so in a sense, it's sort of counterintuitive as a therapist. We want to train people to to have resilience and face the various triggers that they will come across every day because you can't avoid them. And so cherry-picking certain ones... I like the idea of giving people warning about sexual violence and things that, you know, might help them, but... In a sense, it's slightly counterintuitive from a therapeutic point of view. We don't want to create a world that's free of triggers necessarily. Well, 
Yeah, so sorry, Dylan. Yeah. But we yeah. want to create a person who can is resilient to triggers. Now, right. of course, you know, there's always we don't want triggers everywhere. So um, I, I think it's tricky. So the way the research then extrapolated on their conclusion, and they and they put it like this, and I'm quoting from the the research um, by repeatedly referencing participants' history of trauma immediately before they read a distressing passage, they were forced to recall their own trauma. Mm. Trigger warnings therefore seem the opposite of empowering for survivors of trauma. Instead, they force the traumatic event to be the centre mm. of the reader's identity, mm. giving the event a greater weight than before. Interesting. Um, so, yeah. I'd like to give you a trigger warning that I'm about to give you a trigger warning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But I see what you mean. So instead of focusing the person on, you know, instead of that person thinking to themselves, I'm now about to attend a lecture studying laws around violence, they're now walking into the lecture with the focus of I've mm. got to be careful and I've got to think about my trauma. Yeah. So, yeah, you're changing their well, sort of yeah. their thinking, it's their mindset. It's forcing that connection to me, isn't it? Yeah. And I yeah. think there's a distinction to be made. So I'll, I'll, I'll situate my priority in relation to this, and that is in the university environment. So, in other words, I'm distinguishing it from what might occur on social media or in the cinema or whatever. In the university environment... Almost by definition, that's where you're going to be exposed to challenges of your understanding of the world. Mm. Um, that's why you're there. That's why you're there. And if we look at the canon in literature or canon in uh, any field of science or whatever, there's a lot of stuff that's pretty confronting and perhaps um, distinct from the way we move through a social world um, uh, that is pretty heavy duty so the issue up at the tribe it was talking about you know the story of ovid's metamorphosis um so because of some of the i tend to watch the simpsons sometimes (laughs) i watch reality tv who is this so you know but you know just there's a lot of really disturbing scenes in in that ancient greek text right and so there was claims for that to have a trigger warning um see that's just Starting yeah. to tr- that's just starting to trigger my bizarre right bits and in so my I, brain. I think for policymakers we've got to somehow capture the good intentions here yep. which is to mm-hmm. make sure that support is available and a, and a sympathy and an empathy um, is available without undermining a whole lot of other objectives of using certain material yeah um, and simultaneously try and work out and I'm sure this is the difficult bit try and work out what actually warrants a trigger warning yep. or mm, not. Mm. You know, there's a distinction to be made perhaps from the experience of child abuse to somebody who had somebody yell at them in the schoolyard once. You, you know, know, it sort of reminds me of, you know, this is a dilemma, a situation we face throughout healthcare. And it touches earlier on, you know, should you take the approach to germs where you try and avoid everything or should you let your child get exposed and build up strong immunity? Um, Anti-fragility. Should, you know, is, intellib- you know yeah. when does play fighting turn into bullying? When does play fighting that, you know, or, you know, arguing in the playground that teaches kids how to interact socially and mm. teaches them a bit of resilience, when does it fall into the bullying category and need to be something that's prevented? I guess it's a challenge we face with so many of our behaviours and experiences in life. You know, a little bit is often makes us stronger, but too much can break us, and we've got to figure out where that boundary is. Yeah, so Nassim Talib, uh, famous book, um, uh, Anti-Fragility, and uh, his thesis around anti-fragility was to draw a distinction between things that harm us but make 
make us stronger. And the most obvious example of that is vaccinations, mm. right? Beautiful stuff. Mm. Beautiful stuff. Why don't we finish um, the Harvard uh, trigger warning study on that point? People can Google it, Harvard trigger warning, Harvard trigger warning study. There's heaps of articles because it was yep. in the news last week and there's stuff in Psychology Today and lots of news articles. It's really fascinating stuff, um, challenging lots of our... Uh, assumptions that uh, we carry with us. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, in the studio with me is the panel beta, is Cyber Sue, is Trainer Wheels, and I am Dr. Doolittle. Why don't we jump into the next segment and uh, we'll wing it from there. This is called On Air Production. Now, Trainer Wheels. <laughs> Hello. You're going to tell us a scary story. Ooh. We're doing our own sound effects today. I love it. You've done, you've done James Bond. I've done Deliverance. You've done ghosty sounds. A ghost reel, by the way. When are we, we going to cover the topic of are ghosts real? Oh, I don't, let's I think do it next time. That's been un- saying actually, actually, I've got to stop jumping from thing to thing. Someone put um, on our message bank that Doctor Doolittle sounds hypermanic, and I agree with you. Lou, Lou, Lou. I'm always hypermanic on a Sunday morning Confirmed. when someone throws a microphone in front of me. It's terrible. <laughs> anyway, let's go to scary stuff about infectious diseases. Scary. Okay, so this now I'm just going to quickly say, please don't ask me any mean questions because I did quite a. Quick that sounded like an invitation. Mm, that's just, that's just like a, trigger? Trigger. a red rag to a bull. Uh-oh. Okay, well, look, you've been forewarned. Um, there was a report released this week by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, which is, I can't remember what it's called. Honest, look, honestly, I found their website quite confusing. <laughs> so this, just, this whole intro sounds like a, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm about to do a segment, but I know bugger all about what I'm going to talk about. you all with confidence, yeah. I'm sure. Not so much a trigger warning as managing expectations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm into managing expectations <laughs> in everything uh, through life. Okay, so I don't know what this report's called. I can't. Yeah. Do you know what it's about? But it's about <laughs> causes of death and burden of disease in Australia. It's released every two years. Yep. So the most recent one was released this week. Um, I didn't look at the whole report because you have to pay money to look at the whole report. So I just looked at the summaries. <laughs> this is community radio. People. <laughs> we ain't got the dough. Something interesting that came of this report was that overall death rates are falling in Australia and have been for you know a century or more or this, something. You know, this gave me the giggles because I thought everyone died. It's turning out. It's turning out. Everybody dies once, right? Although, you know, I love I love pointing out to people that that statistically, not you know, the idea that everyone dies is not true. Seven percent of every person that's ever been born in the world has not died. Seven percent of people do not die so far. That is great. Yeah, which of course just reflects the fact that seven percent that the current population is seven percent of Mm. everyone ever born. And historically, of course, everyone born, if you go for a study longer than about one hundred and twenty years, dies. But still, what is the death rate? Is that like the number of people who die per year or something? Yeah, per year per proportion of the population. Yeah, Yeah. fair enough. So that is decreasing, which makes sense. You know, people are living living longer longer and doing better overall. Uh, However, interestingly. Counter to this trend, deaths from infectious diseases are increasing in Australia. Mm. Like flu? I think, uh, yes, that's what, that is an infectious yes. disease. Yes. However, the most significant ones in the report were found to be sepsis, mm-hmm. uh, predominantly hospital-acquired infections. Can you tell us what sepsis is? Depends who you ask. 
but okay. sepsis is... He's that Greek guy who does great yeah. souvlaki down in... Uh, <laughs> in Ligon Street. In Ligon yeah. Street, isn't it? Yeah, Dimitrios <laughs> Sepsis. <laughs> That's him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And his, brother, his brother's got a business next door called Pilates. <laughs> Pilates. Yeah, his brother Pilates. Con Pilates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love Con Pilates. Yeah. <laughs> Is this okay. racist? I'm not Are sure. Are we back on track yet? Uh, definitely not. Uh, so sepsis, also known as seps- septicemia, yep. is a, a serious infection resulting in end organ damage. Colloquially, it also often refers to a bloodstream infection. Yeah, so yeah, because that's what the, the lay person like me, yeah. <laughs> the lay doctor, the one who studied psychiatry and forgot all his medicine. Um, yeah, I just think of it as when the infection has broken out of the organ and hit the blood, basically. Has, doesn't it? Isn't that no? Or the other way around? Well, it's you know, it's Breaks got bad enough that it's in the, the blood organs. and spreads everywhere. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you're really sick. And then, basically. because if the infection's you know sort of going wild in your blood, it can hit anything. Exactly. I can. Yeah. If my, I, I live with an infectious disease physician, and if he's listening to this, he is just going to go berserk <laughs> at my definition. I'm going to get back to he and his wife throwing coffee at me. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's interesting. So the, this increase in infectious diseases deaths has been attributed to the ageing population, I think predominantly because people are spending more time in hospital, because 50% of all sepsis is from hospital-acquired infections. Isn't that interesting? So you know, don't go I, to hospital. Yeah, no, well, yeah. no, no, because you've got to go to hospital. No. When I read this, the, the fact of the matter is people live so much longer and they're so much frailer that they die of other things. And, you know, sepsis is just one of those common endpoints that will get people. And I must admit, I looked at it and I thought, ah, oh, it's a little bit of a beat up. It is a little bit, isn't it? I mean, the other thing muddying the waters a little bit is back is antibiotic resistance, yeah. which is meaning people potentially pr- previously had treatable infections that we're finding trickier and trickier to treat. So mm. it's possible that people are dying from things that previously we could just give them some and maybe antibiotic be, and that maybe doesn't work people, anymore. People aren't listening to Do- Dr. Doolittle and his whole don't hug and hand washing in hospitals yeah. and that kind of... Don't touch other humans That's theory. right. Yeah. 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 Humans yeah. are dirty. Yeah. yeah. So Pat I agree with you. Instead. I think it, it might be a bit of a furphy, this whole news And the other thing. thing that I always wonder about whenever I see these studies when they're relatively low numbers, you know, because they're relatively low, is I wonder about the impact of just classification and how mm. we label things. Because we change our classifications and our labels every few years and change the definitions of things. Mm. And that can dramatically increase rates of and so the, the changes aren't real. It's just actually a blip, you know, based on how we classify and code things in hospitals. So I, I did wonder about that. But nevertheless, when you see these trends, they're always something that we always sort of straighten mm. our back a little bit and say, uh, let's look into it. Is it real? Is it just a, um, a statistical blip? You know, what, what is mm. it all about and do we need to do something? And we do know that hospital-acquired infections, in, you know, in the past, Staph aureus or golden staph infections were really common in... I mean, they still are quite common, but uh, a lot of effort was made to reduce hospital-acquired infections with golden staph, and it's been very effective. So we know there are measures that can be taken to reduce hospital-acquired infections. So I guess it's just sort of a reminder for all of us that the five moments of hand hygiene probably are worth doing. The five moments of hand hygiene. Mm, there you, are must five moments. Us, you must walk us through those. I don't know what they are. It's just before you and after you touch anything. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a hospital <laughs> thing about, you know, before you touch a patient, after you touch a patient, before you do a procedure, after you do a procedure, before you enter your room. And there's all these, you know, it's just a way of getting people to remember. And, you know, amazingly, I can't remember the five moments despite 35 <laughs> years in the public hospital system. <laughs> hey, we're going to go to a quick couple of our last two little Sweet commercial yeah. breaks. <laughs> Three, triple R. Don't forget to look at our Facebook page, Radiotherapy at Triple R. 
give us a little bit of a like. Keep up to date with what we're doing. Um, don't forget you can listen to every show on Radio On Demand on the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Um, don't forget there's podcasts too. Everything in the world exists. Hey, um, to, we've only got seven minutes to go. In fact, six minutes and 15 seconds, to be precise, before the scientists of Einstein and Go-Go fill our airwaves with thoughtful engaging, intelligent banter, as distinct from this. Um, anyway, why don't, I just wanted to finish up the show by telling, giving everyone a little bit of an update on the Royal Commission into Mental Health that's going on in Victoria. Has anyone been following it? Very closely. It's fascinating. It seems like it's really getting meat, meat and potatoes. It, it does, doesn't it? It, it really looks does. like it's hitting yeah. the nail on the head. Any other analogies anyone would like to throw? <laughs> um, are you watching it on the uh, computer? I know, you can watch it live. Yeah, stream it live. so they live stream it. And Talk about Nerdfest. Yeah, I've been just chucking it on in the background in my office with it on silent and, you know, in between patients and in between things, you know, I'll, I'll flick the sound up and some of the presentations have blown me away yeah. for their thoughtfulness. You know, patients, clinicians, um, all sorts of people turning up. Let me give you a little, like a little pricey. So it was announced, I don't know, a year or so ago. They spent a bit of time figuring out the terms of reference. They had public consultation. You could jump online and say what you think it should be about. And they had their own ideas and you put them in order of top idea to 10th idea. Um, then they came out with their terms of reference some time ago, you know, months ago. Then they went through a consultation phase where anyone could send in um, anything to them. You could just send in random thoughts, an email, a letter, but their preferred method was that you filled out their survey that asked key questions that addressed their terms of reference. And the key questions were around areas like how to prevent mental health, illness, how do, you early, how do you get early intervention working? How do you get better access for those who are sick? How do you get high-quality services? And how do you connect services up to each mm. other because it's like a bloody maze out there? And, um, and so that consultation phase went till about two weeks ago. And then uh, now they're having hearings. And I think the hearings, the public hearings, go to about August. Then they do a whole lot of research and site visits and think about what they've been told and interview people and look into solutions. I think they go to a couple of other countries too and look at, you know, novel solutions. And then I think in about a year they start engaging with government and various services. You know, it just, you know... That's quite efficient, it's isn't it? just... I mean, I, I know I'm in a sweary mood this morning, but it just seems like a shit-hot way to mm. really approach a problem mm. in a thorough, consultative way. They've got four counts, four... There's four, what are they called, commissioners. commissioners. Mm. One's a, um, an ex-shrink, done a lot of administration. One's got huge engagement in the sort mm. of community sector. There's, uh, there's Ellen Fells, who's I believe has all sorts of experience and has been involved in this sector for decades. You know, it's just, it's an, it's an impressive process. And it's sort of unprecedented in Australia, that this sort of approach to the problem. And, you know, having been in the system, as I've said a few times this morning, 35-odd years, and I've been through a few national mental health plans and all sorts of solutions that I've always been cynical about. I look at them and I think it's a bunch of bureaucrats that are going to find cost-effective ways of telling us to do more with the same money. This one actually looks... Yeah. Mm. This is the first time I got excited. I even put in a submission myself, mind you, you know, because I was overseas. I flew back and I arrived in Melbourne the morning the submissions were due and I thought, oh, I really should put one in. So I, like, slammed one out in two hours, so it was a bit shitty, but um, I did my best. Um <laughs> And, uh, and, of course, you can watch everything. You can watch yeah, all the stuff live. Really you can just... It, the website is www.rcvmhs, which stands for Royal Commission in Victoria Mental Health Services or something, .vic.gov.au. It's super easy to find, you know. But I guess that, you know, the, guess the 
bit that I think is challenging is, you know, those areas are so broad, prevention, early intervention, access, services and connections that, like, I must admit, I looked at my blank bit of paper and thought, where do I begin? Mm. So with that in mind, and given our expectations, and because it's been so well run, it's so well formulated, the scoping is excellent, um, now our expectations are really high, Mm. I feel, about what conclusions the commission will, uh, the inquiry will reach and then what will be asked policy-wise to be done and of course when you start talking about that talking about dollars being attached mm. what do you what's a what's best case scenario do little you know this is all i've done for the last 30 years and and I, I'm also in the unique situation where I work in what's called consultation liaison psychiatry. So I'm a medical psychiatrist. I work in general hospitals. You know, I worked for years with HIV. Now I do cancer. I did trauma. I did spinal injuries. I did kidney failure, dysystic. So I spend my whole life walking back and forward between general mm. hospitals and psych wards. And it is just chalk and cheese. Mm. You know, just the level of services, the right. level of staff, what you get. You front up right. to an emergency department, you've got a broken right. leg, you're going to be seen by a nurse, a doctor, probably a specialist, you're going to have x-rays. Mm. You front up to a psych service and the chances are you'll just get one worker. Um, the chances are they'll get to consult with someone just, you know, the next day. It's just chalk mm. and cheese. Just little things, the quality of the computers, the couches. You know, you, the hosp- one of the hospitals that I work at at the moment, they have all these giant pictures on the lift that are friendly and welcoming of lovely staff holding babies and stuff like that. You go down of the psych ward it's a picture of a security guard with an alsatian you know it's chalk and cheese so i think roughly we need about 50 percent more money i know that's dumb and i could give you why i could Hmm. go into more detail why and i think we need to get the sector working much more harmoniously and i think we need to um be far more evidence-based and we need to get the research groups in australia nhmrc arc or the universities we get need to get them to take it seriously they just make excuses all the time as to why they don't want to fund fund mental health research oh it's too vague it's too soft science yeah that's because you don't fund it and turn it into hard science anyway i'm going to get off my high horse because i see the clock ticking over we i just wanted to give you a little bit of an update though watch it on tv get engaged read all the newspaper articles that are reporting it it's fascinating and i think it's a real opportunity for gen and change. Mm-hmm. Hey team, you've been listening to Radiotherapy. Thank you so much for tuning into us. I'm Dr. Doolittle. We've had the panel beat us Cyber Sue and Trainer Wheels. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.